Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Andy Haslam. This season, we'll be speaking with the key decision makers who reap the benefits and gain the most value from effective risk management. We'll be exploring their perceptions, interactions, and experiences, as well as understanding what they personally have found to be the most rewarding and beneficial aspects that the discipline has to offer. We hope these conversations provoke thought and discussion amongst both risk and non-risk professionals to lift the lid on how its effective delivery can add real value to the roles of the beneficiaries. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. I'm your host, Andy Haslam, and today I'm joined by Sarah Williamson. So Sarah, welcome to Riskologists. Morning, Andy. Thank you. Um, so we always tend to start this off with the same question I ask everybody on it. So how's your podcast game? Have you have you done this before? Do you listen to podcasts in general? No, I'm a bit of a podcast new starter. I've done lots of presentations, panel discussions, things like that. But I think this is my first podcast. Excellent. Well, glad to glad to be the first one for you. So that's all good. Um, as always, I like to kick things off with a bit of a journey to date. So how you started in your career, where it's taken you and a bit of a timeline up to the very point of recording the podcast today. So fire away. Well, it started quite a number of years ago, actually, my career, decades. I think I, I think I started work more than 30 years ago, which still surprises me because I feel really young. And you can see, Andy, that I look really young also. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I am now, I'm a civil structural engineer. And that, that's, that's at my heart. My, the role that I do now is very much a, it's a leadership role. But I started in, I actually started in construction, in building, my education and training, my career has been quite varied, and and I think that's that that's been really helpful to me. Following my uh, following my first degree and graduation, I, I went and studied for a PhD, which is it was in my it was in civil structural engineering. But one of the big things that that taught me was the 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 art and practice of really thinking things through, thinking things from first principles, being a very independent thinker. Um, after after I finished my PhD, I spent time. I spent some time in academia doing lecturing and and research. And again, it's all building up my foundation skills that have got me to where I am now. So I'm thinking about things. I'm solving problems from first principles. I'm testing my I'm testing my understanding of of the of the subjects that I've studied by trying to teach them to a bunch of very bright eighteen year olds. And at the time, I wasn't much older than them. So that was a that was quite a it was quite a good testing start. And then from my from my early 30s, I always joke and say I didn't have a proper job till I was 30 because I'd either worked for myself or been predominantly in, in studying or in academia. From my early 30s, I entered industry as a... I always wanted to be a chartered structural engineer. I was fascinated by the process of becoming chartered and, and the exam that you have to do to get that qualification. And I've really spent my I spent my career in and around the construction industry, either in the research and academic side, the actual physical building side, or, or the design side. So I, I like that. I really like the whole process of delivering projects, physical projects, big stuff from from concept to completion. Mm. And so ultimately, where I where I've ended up, I've gravitated to um, I've gravitated to bigger civil projects, and I've spent nearly the last decade working on big infrastructure in, in the form of power stations, nuclear power stations, in fact. That's, amazing. So that's where I am now. Is that, how's no, that? That's, that's great. No, that's it's a, a fascinating journey. And I think a lot of the, the, the guests that we've had, you know, have had a similar thing in that they've they've had quite a varied career. 
Um, and I always think, you know, myself, I've, I've had a, a quite a, a very career across a bunch of different industries and things along the way. And I think it only just helps. I don't think it, it you know, it's, it's not a detriment at all. If anything, like you say, it helps build that base knowledge of everything and, and helps you really with, uh, everything else that comes after that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Having that breadth of experience, we, we often, you know, we're trying to do things differently and having the more experience you've got to draw on, the more chance you've got, I think, of helping to the industry to change direction. No, 100%. I agree with you with that one. Um, so kind of getting into the, the topic a little bit here, as everyone can already tell from the title of the episode, uh, that we're going to be discussing risk management and how it's best kept at the forefront of every project professional's mind. Going into this in a little bit more detail shortly, but for the benefit of our listeners, please can you give a bit of a brief overview of your experience with risk management? You know, when you first kind of came across it, uh, your initial thoughts and, and how you currently utilize it? So it's interesting. One of the reasons I was interested in talking to you on this podcast is because for me, you know, having had the opportunity to think about risk and and, and risk as a topic over over a, what's becoming a, a relatively long career, it, it's actually it's an integral part of my work in life. It's it's part of the toolbox. It's part of the way I think. And it's actually an integral. We don't think about it. We don't necessarily stop and think, oh, I've just done a dynamic risk assessment. But it is actually an integral part of our everyday, all of our everyday lives as well. So I, I think probably the first time well, I was introduced to risk in a very informal manner in my early years, where I, when I started my career, I was I was involved in construction and the way that we managed risk then in the 80s was by thinking about what we were doing and, and essentially looking after our own health and safety and that this we can so I, I like the idea I, I really like categorizing risk but first and foremost the one that I think about in my profession is health and safety risk comes first um and then later on in my career I started designing things and as I was designing things I'm designing a structure that's got to go from an idea on my piece of paper through the whole construction process to something that that's that's in operation, and I'm sat there trying to think about well how what what could go wrong how could this be built what what's my contribution as the designer to managing the risks associated with the with the delivery of this project whether that's the the health and safety of the teams who are who are implementing the work whether it's a technical risk, is there something about the materials or the methods that I'm choosing that might cause the project to go late or to cost more money? What am I going to do about this? And it was quite it was quite informal. We were just we were left to to really think about this ourselves. And then what would happen was the project goes to site, you get lots of queries back because you haven't we haven't had a structured way to to think about and and, and address the risk. The first, so so that's that's kind of that's step one. Then I am from I'm from West Cumbria, and and I was brought up close to the Sellafield um, plant. I was, I was going to say repro, it's done that plant's done many many that site's done many many things over its career from being the first nuclear power um, generation to reprocess into a big long history of decommissioning and cleanup. And I had the opportunity to work on some of the some of the decommissioning projects in the in the high hazard areas. And, and I was really, I was introduced then to the discipline of um, hazard identification and the whole, that that level of really, really structured risk management where we'd sit, because we were doing work in, in, in areas that were by the, by the nature of hazardous, we, we had a very disciplined approach to sitting back and thinking with a full multidisciplinary team, what could go wrong, what would the mitigations be, what can we do, what can't we do? 
And it was that, you know, I, I don't apply that level of formal discipline to my everyday life, but that's one of the experiences that I draw back on. And that I try to anecdotally, the, the kind of thinking that I try to instill in the teams that I'm working with on, on whatever we're working on. No, it's, it's a great approach to having, like you say, it almost becomes like a second nature type thing. That's what you want to yeah. do and get it to. So yeah, amazing that, Sarah. Thank you. So let's get into the topic a little bit. To, to those of us who are risk professionals, it always seems to be such an obvious thing that to have risk at, um, as an important and a constant consideration to these, you know, in project space. But what's your experience been with that? Have you found it's it's a common thing for people to, to have it at the forefront or is it really not the case? I think it's, so, so people will, nobody, I don't think you'd talk to any project professional who would say, oh no, we don't need to, you know, risk is not at the heart of what we do in terms of how we manage our projects. It is absolutely at the heart of it. But getting a a really practical and user in, user-friendly implementation, that for me, that that's the challenge. So if you're not careful, I think the, the there is a risk there's a risk that risk becomes an add-on. Yeah. Where where the teams will go, oh God, I've done my work, I've got my I've I've planned my scope, I've done this, I've done that, and on oh, I need to look at the risks now. And rather than sit back and really I like to really sit back and think about it and digest it. So so in terms of getting risk into our work in practice, I think it is actually it is the at the heart of every project professional's work in practice. But the impact of it. For me, the challenge is to make sure that the, the the way we're managing our risk is really, really impactful. So if now I'm looking after a big program of work and I've got lots of leaders who are responsible for their risk in their in their portion of the work. And the challenge for us is to be able to, without losing without losing the meaning, be able to have the detailed consideration of risk in every single element of the score. We'll be able to bring it up to a level where we can sit back and say, okay, in terms of in terms of the works that we're planning, what is it about our methods, our means, the external factors that could impact on our cost, on our schedule, on 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 other other parameters that we're addressing? And I think if you if you if you talk to if you talk to people in the industry. There is a there's a tendency for us to be trying to manage hundreds of risks for me to make it to make it live. We need to I expect the people who are sat around me to almost know off by half the top 40 or top 50. And that's how we, we take we need to be testing, we need to be testing those, not exactly daily, but on, on a regular heartbeat. Because ultimately, how so the challenge for me, my, my job is to deliver a, to deliver an artifact, an asset to a safely to the right quality to a schedule and to a cost so, so how do i do that i identify that baseline and then with the risk and opportunities associated with it and then to bring it in as close as possible to that baseline what do i do i need to actively manage those risks so it needs to it can't be seen as a add on it's got to be something that everybody in the organization understands their part in whether it's an upside or a downside and i, and I need to distribute distribute those risks to the right to the right part of the team as well so i need people to be empowered to manage the risks that are in their control so I, so i need it cascaded up and down and i need everybody to know their contribution and, and be really really focusing on you know, what 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 are the upside what are the opportunities that i need to land and what are the downside risks that i need to mitigate mm -hmm. 
So he's quite that's quite a long-winded answer, I think. But they, but ultimately, it's, you need to spend enough time on on the subject to make sure that everybody understands what are the what are those key what are those key levers, and have I given them to to the right people so that they can pull them? And I'm and I'm checking on them every day to go, you know, did you pull that one? Why didn't you pull it? Because it's because I gave it to you, and I should have given it to somebody else. No, and in, I think following on from that, really, you know, the next thing I was going to be asking was, you know, have you found, is, is there a way that you found the best approach to to take with your teams then when you're trying to instill this this more conscious and continued approach to risk management? And and also to kind of add to that in the differences of the different areas that you've been working in, you know, say Sellerfield or, you know, what you're currently working on now, have you had to take a different approach with that across the different teams? Um, I, I think... In some areas, so if you're working in a high hazard area, it is a very much part of you do this and then you have to follow that step and then you follow that step. Where I am now, it, it's quite, um, I'm not going to say conversational, but it, it's something that we have to have as an ongoing dialogue. So we have, we sit alongside the, there's a risk team and we sit alongside the risk team and we do all of the standard stuff where we score and the things, what are the trends, are they increasing or are they decreasing? But the thing that I like to do with the team is have the conversation. So, you know, the, the, the bit I've just said about the levers. So I have the conversation, where are your where where are you with the risks that sit in your bit of the program? How do they how do they map up into the bigger program risks or the portfolio risks and are we managing everything properly so that it, it becomes a it becomes a real integral part of our daily working life. It, it is it has to be seen it has to be a genuine tool. Because it's how we, I think it's really, really how we can how we not not exactly control because we've got all of our performance metrics, but but once once you have a baseline, for me, the having exemplary risk management is how we'll ultimately deliver the transformational um, performance that that we're aiming for on not just the projects I'm working on now, but on all on all projects. And what do we want to avoid? We always want to avoid the unplanned or the um, the cost overruns and the schedule overruns that are typical in the in the certainly in the, the construction industry that I work in. And I'm absolutely convinced that one of the key the key ways in which we do that is being very very serious about rich risk management. And I think the you know, I know this this tool the, this tool. This podcast is around risk professionals. Well, I could call myself a risk practitioner because I'm a, I'm an, I'm I'm not a risk professional. I'm a user of the of the support of the of, of the risk professional function. Um, and I think whilst it's, you know, it's 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 very easy to get sucked into the probabilistic analysis and the actual very technical side of it, we need to make sure that that's always balanced off against what it is what is it that we're ultimately trying to achieve and did we make sure that whatever it is that we put into our models we really really understand and we've gone through the process that parallel process that i've just described of dialoguing it with the teams and making sure that we really really got to the heart of what it is that could go wrong or right even no definitely um and on the same kind of note, really, about the, the engagement with the teams and making sure that it is at the forefront of, you know, what they're, they're doing on a daily basis. Have you had any kind of areas where you've actually really found more resistance to it from any of your teams and so on? I don't think it's resistance. I, I think there's more of, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that stand out for me. One is if you've got teams that are under pressure and, and, and they've got to get something out, then there are certain things that are the things that get the, that, that start to get less serious attention. So that's one thing. And I think there's another thing. The, the process that I've just described to you, the way that I like to approach risk, 
you need space. In fact, that's, you know, just said when if people are under pressure, mm -hmm. then it can become a more tick box exercise. Yeah. The approach that I like to take requires space. It requires time. It requires chewing things over, changing your mind a bit. And I think when you're either under time pressure or you're overly process constrained, it can it can impact the quality of the thought that goes into the risk process. So I, I've had experiences where we're working in fairly constrained environments. Um, I'll give you a, a design example. I've talked about what what could go wrong, what 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 could what could the impact of our methods or or means be on cost or schedule or risk to life and limb and all of that. And, and working on a project where the um, the design was subject to multiple layers of review. So there's a perception in people's minds that the way that we're managing the risk is by having somebody looking over your shoulder and somebody mm -hmm. looking over your shoulder and and, and so and, and losing really losing the, the accountability you know at which level in the organization is that is that accountability for having thought through from first principles what could go wrong what are we doing about it what's unusual here what just having that that brainstorm around what might happen and and, and so being in that environment, it's not, not exactly groupthink, but that, that over-constrained environment, I've had experiences where things have gone wrong. And when we dig into it and ask the basic questions about, okay, so go, go back to first principles. I don't need to write a procedure. Just go back to first principles. What was unusual about the thing? What could have gone wrong? What's not part of our normal practice? We go, oh, yeah, well, we don't normally do that. And, oh, no. Well, we don't normally make a connection like that. And no, we don't normally cite that there. So it's that I think, and I think that's one of I take very seriously my responsibility as a leader and 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 you know, it's, a, it's a message for other leaders in the industry. You've got to create that space for your teams and make sure that not just it's not just following a process. Are you are you actually fundamentally thinking this thing through from first principles? And and nobody if you're able to if you're able to create that environment. Then there is no resistance because mm -hmm. who who doesn't want who doesn't not want to deliver a mm -hmm. deliver a job that manages the risk identifies and then actively manages the risk. It's a really great point, and I, again, the, the the term that keeps coming up a lot in a, in all of our episodes, I think, I think I don't think there's one where it hasn't come up is the whole tick box exercise, and you know I think that like you say, actually giving people that space to. Um, really focus on what they're doing with it and not have someone peering over their shoulder, not feeling like they're mm. having to do it just for ticking a box um, is a massive, a massive thing. And will, as you say, get rid of that resistance to it because they actually feel like they're actually getting something out of it and doing something yeah. with it. So kind of, again, moving on really from that, you know, one of the things we discussed in the lead up to today was how, you know, we really learn best from doing and, and more often than not really from failing. However, we don't really want to experience any failures within projects, especially high hazard environments that like you've already mentioned. Um, we rely a lot on lessons learned from and, and the passing on of knowledge to try and educate others to make sure that those mistakes that we've had or we've made in the past uh, and to try and foresee those that, that may come in the future. But how do we, you know, how do we do this effectively? And and have you had any experiences where, you know, past issues have, have helped you to pass on lessons learned to your teams and, and aid them in thinking about identifying similar issues in the future? It's a, it's a really interesting one because lessons learned along with risk is another topic you know it's, it's something that is so easy to say so hard to do yeah. really hard to do in a way that's meaningful and i spent a lot of time with my teams thinking about this and and trying to um 
trying to really categorize learning into we have industry learning so so there are you know, the national audit office etc publish great great documentation that we all again space and time thing we're all time poor these days it's about carving out time to understand what's going on in your industry so this is this is the way i, I approach it with a team and it, make, make sure that you understand what's industry specific um and then from a project perspective we always talk about plan do review what what does that mean what does that really mean so you've got your your forward thinking you've got to have the space and time to think through think through what it is you're planning to do and what could go wrong and how you're going to mitigate it and then as you're doing the thing it's another big discipline to really say okay that's we, we've planned something we've got so far how how is it going? Yeah. How is it going? Do what what if it, if it's a, if it's an actual physical piece of work? What's the feedback from the team? Where do we need to change direction? So you've almost got your you've got your your industry learning. I say project learning because then you, there is something before you start any project. You know you you need to not understand well what's what's happened in the past. What are the what are the general do's and don'ts on a project of this type? And then the next bit I always call it the the living learning. Mm-hmm. It, because it, it, I think if you write it down, there, there are points in time at which you go, right, I'm going to stop now. I'm going to write all that down because I think that's a really useful repository for other people to come and pick up. Mm-hmm. But then during the, the, the role and during the implementation phase, it, you have to be very careful to create that living learning environment where part of your processes are, we, we stop, we assess what we've done to date. We assess, is it going to plan? We take the feedback from those who are actually implementing our plans and, in, and if necessary, we change direction. Mm-hmm. So the two the two really go hand in hand because that, that learning is, is part of your active risk management, really. No, definitely. So are you taking on those things? That you do, do you take them at particular milestones throughout the project then or are you just making it like a regular drumbeat with your teams to, to be doing those points of assessing where you are at the time and and you know potentially changing or re-baselining maybe from there? So it, it, think of it like a Russian doll because you you start with with a project in, in in a planning phase. Then everything is about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? When you're actually in implementation, then there are cycles. There's a daily cycle. Each each day, people actually start work. At the end of the day, we should be able to sit back and go, okay, what? How did our day go today? What should we do differently? So every time for me, every time I see a method, a new method implemented. Or, 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 or the same methods implemented in a different area, then we should be sitting back and feeding back what, what, how did that go? What do we need to do differently? So there is the, there's a daily, there's a daily cycle, a weekly cycle, uh, as you finish a piece of work cycle, as you finish a project cycle. So it, it's almost a, it, you, you could look at it as almost a, a learning calendar is, mm-hmm. that, that went through the whole project life cycle. Excellent. Now it's a really interesting thing, which I think, you know, a lot of a lot of professionals could probably take away from that as as like you say the rolling continuous, not just monitoring your own risks and the monitoring the 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 project as it is as how it's how it's coming across and how it's developing, but you know adding those lessons learned along the way as opposed to like you say get towards the end of it, then look back and then try and take you know yeah, yeah. from there. Exactly, exactly. And the other point for me is you know people talk a lot about oh lesson what lessons we've learned, but unless you've depending where you are in a team. You might not know what the lessons learned were, but you, what you will be doing is working to the new improved ways of working. So it's not a lesson until it's been capitalized. Yeah. So so you somebody's had a great new idea or somebody's observed a better way of doing something, then 
it's only when we've actually implemented it into the method or into our ways of working that it, that it is a lesson. And I think that's a really interesting dilemma for us as well, because sometimes you put into a position where somebody goes, oh, so what are the lessons and what, you know, but I, my working team just need to know that they, they, they don't have to have encyclopedic knowledge of, oh, there was this lesson, there was that lesson. They just need to know that we're in an environment of continuous improvement and risk management, whereby managing the risks is allowing us to live, deliver our targets and the, the learning is allowing us to, it's, it's another form of risk management really that we don't learn and then we don't continuously improve. So all of these things, if you're not careful because they are big subjects and they, and they are almost become professions on their own, if you're not careful, they don't become integrated into your project life. So you're not like a your project isn't a system of systems. It becomes, a, oh, we do lessons, we do safety, we do quality, we do risk. No, we deliver a project and all of these things are integral into the way we deliver our project. No, no, I agree, I agree with you wholeheartedly on everything with that. Uh, moving on slightly. So, you know, without really wanting to kind of lead the witness, really, um, have you found having dedicated risk professionals in, in regular contact and working alongside your team helps to keep you know, risk at the forefront of their minds then? Oh, absolutely. 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 And I love it. I love it because I, I like the, you know, I, I like the technical aspects of risk management as well. So I, I like doing that. I like the probabilistic side of things. So having the, having the risk professionals in the team and that tension between, well, practically we think this could go wrong and it's going to be somewhere between there or there. And that's more likely than that. And that's more likely than that. Having the risk professionals to then to interpret that into, into, their language and model it for us so that we work together and we've we we end up with the with the outputs that are, are a tool to inform our thinking really i i think it's it's absolutely invaluable so for me i find it is personally fascinating and it's professionally invaluable excellent very good to hear we always like to hear that we're that the risk <laughs> professionals are well are well needed so yeah oh no great. big big shout out big shout out to my uh to my risk team awesome excellent Kind of moving on again, really on to like the next question, really. Um, if you could put a bit of a list of must-haves, nice-to-haves and not necessaries, you know, from all the risk practices that you, you tend to have, all the, you know, the, the the general risk management that we all know, for your daily workload, you know, what what would they be? You know, your must-haves, nice-to-haves and not necessaries. Everybody needs to know the top 10. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, and I'll, I'll put it a slightly different way. When I spent a lot of time doing structural analysis, using fancy computer software because I thought it was really cool to understand how to run the fancy computer software. And and you can see risk in that same way. Mm-hmm. And and the discipline that I had, and 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 I could be challenged on this, but but this is what I still live by. The discipline I had was any analysis that I was going to do, I I under, I still I could do on a piece of paper some really simple calculations. And and I I knew broadly that I could then do a check on what came out of the computer. So I expect uh, that the must have is that in parallel to the the work that's being done by the risk professional, we need to be absolutely rigorous in in ensuring that the inputs that we give are completely robust. So that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the, the dialogue in the risks and testing them and what's more important and what's more likely and what's less likely. So for me, that is an absolute must have What's not necessary is a risk register with 500 or 1,000 risk yeah. on it. That's a must not have, actually. Yeah, and what's not, what, what we mustn't have is that, is that it, for me, less is more. We mustn't have a culture where the team think, oh, if I've, done, if I've got a massive load of risks, then I've done a really great job. Yeah. 
no it, again it's another thing that i wholeheartedly agree with and you know i think it, you, you've got to have a risk register but you've got to have a good risk register and like you say you can if you've got the iterative process like you've already mentioned about going through and constantly looking at those lessons learned if you're constantly updating your risk register then you shouldn't have 500 risks on there you should have like you say everything that's kind of pertinent to the time and it doesn't mean yeah. that it can't evolve and things can't be added and things can't be closed off so yeah it's i i, I agree with you and everything with that so adding on from those, do you think that there are any deliverables or things that you're, you're currently missing um, from your general risk management services, things that, you know, you would really benefit, would really benefit you and your teams? Um, have you had any experiences with things like reference class forecasting, for example? And, and do you think there's things that, um, something that would help you in any of your current environments better? So reference, I mean, we have, I'm quite lucky actually, because I, I think we've got quite a, a broad range of approaches to risks available to us. The project I'm working on now is there's, there's there's a layered approach, and there is reference class forecasting is considered that at one level because we're because of who we're engaging with. And I think I find reference class forecasting really interesting, especially in the industry I'm in and the job that I'm trying to do now. And a, a little bit of my academic background as well. You know, I was. I was a, a, an experimentalist in structures in the 90s and say, you know, extrapolation was terrifying to me. And I, so I find reference class forecasting. Also, one of my raisons d'etre, which I didn't really say in the introduction, is about transforming the construction industry. It's an industry that has not really progressed in the last decades. So whilst I think... You know, you've you've heard me wax lyrical about lessons learned. Absolutely, we learn the lessons of the past, but I'm really interested in figuring out well, how do we turn the dial? How do we change the? How do we change the trajectory? So I think it's great to have all of those tools available, but it's got to be in the context of you take it in the context of what you're trying to achieve, and also from a from a level of being prudent, I suppose. And they, if if so, I I'm a I'm a practitioner my objective to to deliver transformation in my industry to deliver what my customers need whether i consider my customers as the my shareholders the taxpayers from another perspective there's a prudent investor somewhere that is not interested in the fact that i want to change the trajectory and do things better they want to know that are we going to earn a return on our investment regardless so so it's the, it's having the right tool for the right for the right reason i suppose well, awesome. Thanks for that, Sarah. So as we're kind of, kind of starting to, to wrap things up a little bit, um, if you were to give some advice to other pro project teams out there listening regarding how they should embrace best risk, risk practices and, you know, get the engagement from their teams and, and keep it at the forefront of their minds, you know, what would you say to them? Well, I think the message is from the whole story or our whole conversation for me about it is understand your context understand what's appropriate in terms of risk management lessons learned for your environment and build it in and believe it, do it in a way that's believable and credible to you. And if it's leadable, believable and credible to you, then then it will be to, to your teams. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I've kind of really taken from from the conversation so far, which I, I, I think seems very much a, an obvious thing to go with, uh, but is so limited in terms of what is done in especially some of the clients that i've dealt with in the past is actually giving people the time and the space to look at it and do it properly yeah um yeah you know it's such an obvious thing to say you know take your time look at it but as you say we're all all time poor at the moment i think in, in a yeah. lot of things and there's always the push for it so um you know to kind of add to, to what you've already mentioned and 
it just take from from what's already been discussed so far in the conversation that's one thing that i will really take away from this and mm. I, I would pass on to to any of the other clients that i deal with in in the future as well um so yeah that's a really big takeaway i think for me and, and i'm sure for anybody else who's listening as well mm. um so really again that we you know on the subject of, of advice and everything there we always uh, all our regular listeners will know that we always end the podcast really with a, a question um, and that question is, if you were to give yourself one piece of advice at the start of your career that, you know, you maybe picked up along the way, uh, what would that be? So it's a funny one, this. So if you probably, pick, I don't know whether you show any pictures or uh, videos with this, Andy, but if if the listeners don't know, I'm, I'm actually a woman as well as everything else that I've just described. <laughs> <laughs> and I think since, I, and I, I'm, I'm fairly curious, I've always questioned myself. And I think throughout my career, I've, probably over questioned and I think that uh, and, and gender doesn't help that gender doesn't help that so I, I think without being arrogant I think self-belief is really important no again great advice and you know we've not I don't think there's anyone really who's doubled up on any advice so far when in any of our guests so <laughs> a very simple thing but it's definitely something to take away from it um, so really that kind of brings us to the end of the podcast and it just leaves it for me to, to thank you very much, Sarah, for your time in the build up to today and obviously for today itself. Um, if anybody who's been listening to the podcast has any questions or anything about this, obviously they can contact us and contact me through here and I'll probably liaise something back to yourself and, you know, if yeah, we can yeah. do, we'll help out with anything there. But again, it's it's been, you know, a really good, really good podcast, really enjoyed it and uh, some really great examples and, and great experience and um, you know, some great lessons, I think, for everybody to take away from it. So thanks again, Sarah. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. And anybody else listening, obviously, stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Riskologist, please make sure to follow Optimize on our social media platforms, where you can subscribe to this podcast, be notified of the latest releases, and help us broaden our reach to the wider risk community. You can also find the full back catalogue from season one, where we've interviewed some of the discipline's most renowned thought leaders around the industry's most pressing topics. If you'd like to get in touch, either as a future guest or with any subject suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please contact us using the address in the podcast notes below. And please join us next time, where we'll be hearing the thoughts of another key decision maker and their experiences with risk management. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.